Thank you for downloading this edition of Wartime. Remember, as always, Wartime is fully supported by contributions from listeners like you. For more information, please visit wartimepodcast.com. I hope you enjoy the program. In 1822, a former slave took the name of Denmark Vizi and sent the antebellum south into a tailspin. Born in the Caribbean, Vizi purchased his own freedom for $600 and quickly became one of the most visible figures of African-American liberation in the city of Charleston, South Carolina. Though he himself was free, Vizi worked closely with enslaved peoples and organized what would have been the largest slave uprising in American history. Betrayed by his own people and brutally executed, Vizi's impact aroused the political emotions of the South to pass aggressive new laws that moved the country one step closer to civil war. On this episode, we discuss Denmark Vizi's rebellion. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Wartime. Hello ladies and gentlemen and welcome to another edition of Wartime. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. On Season 4 of the series, we're discussing game changers, who they are, what they did, and why they still matter. As always, remember, history is best when it's shared, and you can follow me on Twitter at Brady Kreitzer or by searching Wartime Podcast. You can visit our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Brady J. Kreitzer. You can visit my author's website, bradykreitzer.com for news, events, and appearances, and of course your home for everything wartime on the web, wartimepodcast.com. Season 4 is about halfway finished. We're back now from our break, hopefully you had a restful summer, and hopefully you have a wonderful fall. It's good to be back. We've been tabulating a lot of great emails from listeners to prepare our end of the season show. We've got a great amount of recommendations for subjects here for Season 4. I will be very frank, however, we probably can't do them all. But one of the things I like about this season is that we can talk about different things and different subjects in different ways. And we can even extend the season longer than we want. I mean, who says it has to be a 16-episode season? We can do maybe longer than that. Uh, But thank you for being patient with our break. Unlike a lot of podcasts where people just uh, talk, I mean, literally just talk about nonsense... Uh, this is one where we have to do a lot of research for the episodes, whether it be, uh, again, uh, your research on your own to recommend it, what you send me, uh, and some of the things that I have to do on my own. There's a lot of work that goes into each episode. So I'd love to sit here with my friends and talk about Star Trek all day uh, and how it makes me feel, but we can't do that. Uh, so again, thank you for your patience. Again, as someone who's not a radio person and as someone who's at least didn't used to be a television person, I guess I am now, um, it means a lot to me that you keep coming back and you you um, you wait through the break, so that's great. This is an episode that I wrestled with. Should we do it and should we not? And I think, you know, we could talk about someone like Genghis Khan uh, or, or something, uh, but I like to keep the podcast relevant. I mean, the beginning of this, this season, I always say, uh, we're talking about who they were, what they did, and why they still matter. This is an episode, and this is a subject today, that does still matter. And it still matters uh, in a very meaningful way. Uh, A few years ago, I had the opportunity to travel to Charleston, South Carolina. And 
Uh, knowing the history of Charleston, what it was, what it represents, it's a great city still now, I, I carried a lot home with me. And when I heard about the terrible and shocking attack uh, on the Emmanuel AME Church in Charleston, uh, my blood boiled, I was angry, and of course I was deeply saddened. Uh, a white supremacist, and I'm not going to say his name because I don't think he, he really matters, uh, murdered nine people as they practice their faith. Uh, I don't want to get too emotional as historians, we try not to, uh, but for a lot of people, uh, that attack represented many different things. And for me as a historian, knowing the history of the Emanuel AME Church, whether the murderer understood it or not, uh, it was something that opened some very old wounds for this country uh, in many different ways. Uh, again, uh, not to get too emotional about the subject, not to dwell on those events too much, but I think this is a relevant issue, and I think it's important we talk about it. The Emmanuel AME Church, the AME stands for African Methodist Episcopal Church, uh, and that's a mouthful. AME is much easier to say for the sake of the podcast, that's people in Charleston will do it too. Uh, it's a church with a deep history, associated with a lot of very uplifting things, but also a lot of very negative things. We're going to talk today about a man named Denmark Vesey. Denmark Vesey led what would have been, if successful, the largest slave rebellion in the history of North America. This is a tough subject to talk about. When you talk about history of the American South in the 19th century, it stirs up a lot of emotions. But here's the, here's the thing. Nobody is saying today that anyone who lives in Charleston or lives in a southern or former slaveholding state is responsible for the sins of the past. Nobody is. But I think many people feel that when you attack, that when you discuss in a frank way the history of the South, you're attacking the modern South as well. And that leads to a lot of silliness and a lot of very uh, sometimes frustrating and mind-boggling uh, actions in terms of uh, trying to rewrite history or whitewash history in some way to make things seem better than they were. People today are debating the Confederate battle standard. Should it fly and should it not? And again, maybe that's a whole other episode, but I mean, the history is pretty clear on that. The debate is not about the history. The debate is about uh, how we interpret it today and if that supersedes that past. I mean, you don't have to defend anyone. You don't have to defend a slave owner. Uh, it was a deplorable thing that they did. Uh, but I think a lot of people feel they have to, and we really shouldn't. Uh, that's not going to let us discuss the past, frankly, and in a productive way. So let's talk about Charleston. Let's talk about the man Denmark Vesey uh, and, and move forward. There's a couple things you have to understand about the American South in the 18th and 19th centuries for this story to make a lot of sense. And the best way to describe it is through an event we always use symbolically, and all historians, if they're worth their salt, can tell you this, called Thomas Jefferson's Nightmare. It sounds kind of ominous, but what is it? Thomas Jefferson, founding father of the United States, uh, literally the man who wrote the Declaration of Independence, was a slave owner. So was George Washington. So were the majority of people uh, that signed the Declaration of Independence. So how's that for a little bit of contradiction? But Thomas Jefferson always talked about his nightmare, and his nightmare was that slaves in the American South would rise up against their masters and slaughter them. 
Now, a couple of things you have to understand, especially true in South Carolina in the 19th century, heck, even by 1708. By the year 1708, slaves outnumbered slave owners. In fact, slaves outnumbered all white people in South Carolina. The largest portion of the population of South Carolina in the 19th century was black. And they were, by the vast majority, slaves. There was a collective consciousness in the southern mind, everywhere from Virginia uh, to Texas, Florida to Mississippi, you name it, about what we call Thomas Jefferson's nightmare. The idea was there's this pervasive, shared, and mostly unfounded fear that slaves would one day rise up as brutes and savages uh, and kill their masters and their families. Uh, and these people were obsessed with this idea. Never mind, the, again, the inherent contradiction of the brute and savagery that they were doing to these slaves. And this is something you have to get. It's just a paranoia that's that's very real, that they cannot wrap their heads around. Now, by and large, this was unfounded. Slave rebellions were very infrequent in North America, and they never worked. They were all failures. Uh, but events in the recent age of our story, from, say, 1794 to about 1801, really changed that narrative. Because on the island of Haiti, what is today Haiti, Hispaniola, uh, the colony of France called Saint-Domingue, there was a massive slave rebellion. It lasted about seven to eight years, uh, and it was successful. Slaves rose up, they killed their masters, they burned slave owners at the stake, decapitated people. It was, it was, it was everything Southerners feared that could happen in their own world. It was no doubt true. I mean, their worst nightmares had come true in Haiti. And from that moment on, all of the 19th century, this fear was just overwhelmingly pervasive. This sort of uh, menace of sorts uh, that slaves could rise up at any time. Now, because this existed, any time there was a actual, an actual attempt to cause a slave rebellion, the reactions were, uh, were not proportional. They were over the top, as we'll see today. And they stuck in the public consciousness of the age. And that's the world in which this story happens. Charleston in South Carolina has some of the strictest slave laws on the books. After this event, it'll go a thousand times worse than it ever was before. So let's talk about it. Our story is going to revolve around a man who will ultimately be named Denmark Vesey. Now there's a few problems with starting out. Uh, Denmark Vesey's life is very difficult to trace. And the reason is because for his entire existence, to that point, he was treated as property. Like a chair, like a sheep, like a goat. I mean, this is the horrendous nature of human enslavement. But we only have a basic understanding of his early life based on transactions, receipts, quite literally, of where he was and where he was working. What we can gather is, from various sources, he was born named Telemach on the island of what is today St. Thomas in the Caribbean. No surprise there, uh, a huge number of slaves went to the Caribbean because they could work all year round, as opposed to in different places in the American South. That was not so easy. But he was owned by a ship captain named Joseph Vesey. Uh, Again, we'll talk about how he gets that name. Telemach is owned by Joseph Vesey. And Joseph Vesey is Bermudan. He's a sea captain. He's a slave merchant. What that means is he deals in slaves all the time, and he travels everywhere. No surprise, 
Joseph Vesey sold the young Telemac to the island of Saint-Domingue. He sold him to a French slave owner there. Now, we aren't certain how Telemac, the subject of our story today, uh, the man who will be Denmark Vesey, gets off of the island, but some sources indicate he feigned illness, he feigned epileptic seizures. And because so many African peoples went to Saint-Domingue and were just swept away in the horrid conditions of it. I mean, people were literally worked to death there. The sugar production was so high. Because that happened, the man who bought him said, I have no use for the slave. He called Thomas Vesey back and he sold him back. He said, this man has seizures. I can't have him on my plantation. So Thomas Vesey takes the young Telemac and continues to work with him. Uh, Telemac would work very closely with him. Thomas Vesey teaches him to read and write. Let's not go out and say this guy's a saint by any means. He was a slave trader. So literally thousands of people he took to their death. But he did work very closely with the Bermudan Sea Captain Vesey. That man would ultimately settle in Charleston, South Carolina. Might not sound like a big deal, but it's a very, very important detail. For which we'll talk about next. Interesting note, Telemac, um, for all of his epileptic seizures in the hell that was San Domingue, this is before the Slave Rebellion. Uh, never had a seizure again once uh, Thomas Vesey returned him or, or picked him back up and took him with him. So, again, you're seeing a, a very cunning individual. Now, let's talk about Charleston. I think that's important. When we think of Charleston today, we may think of uh, perhaps Fort Sumter in the American Civil War. We're dealing with uh, the, the early 1800s here, so that's going to be way later. But this will be a big part of it. You may think of maybe the American Revolutionary history. If you buy my book, Hessians, you can read a whole chapter on it. Just a shameless plug. Um, but this is going to be that in-between. And it's going to be a really important place. For a lot of people, the beating heart of the American South, I mean, the antebellum, that's Latin, it means before the war, the Civil War, slave-owning South was Charleston. The wealthiest of the wealthiest people lived there. They owned huge amounts of slaves. But, of course, living in the city, their plantations were in the back country. So they wouldn't necessarily have all of their slaves with them at all times. But it was a deeply gentrified culture. Uh, very unusual place, but certainly probably uh, one of the most deeply and intensely passionate places involving slavery. Uh, the people there, the white people, that is, would not entertain any subject about slavery. If an outsider brought it up, they would change the subject immediately uh, or become extraordinarily offended. I mean, you could not talk to them about it. A new book was re recently released called Our Man in Charleston by uh, Christopher Dickey. If you want to see what it's like in Charleston before the Civil War on the ground, that book is unbelievable. It's one you definitely have to read. I tweeted it out and put it on my Facebook. It's just wonderful. Uh, but this is the kind of place Charleston is. People are uh, very proper. People are very British in some ways in terms of the way they view themselves, their sensibilities. But they are 100% a slave society. I mean, the very wealthy white individuals who live in Charleston, they, they literally identify themselves. Their self-identity is tied into slavery. That is, enslavement is justified in so many ways, economic, intellectual, uh, biblical, and so on. They build their entire social structure off of the fact that they have a permanent slave class. And in turn, it elevates them in their own standing. So that's the kind of place Charleston is. It's a tough place to live. Uh, in the uh, fall months, in the winter months, you'll see a lot of people in the cities. 
In the summer months, whenever it gets very hot, the mosquitoes come out, the yellow fever comes out. Most of the very wealthy members of Charlestonian society will go other places. Uh, they'll go to the Caribbean, maybe they'll go to uh, Europe somewhere to get away from the terrible disease that lives there. Of course, the slaves can't. But this is where a man, uh, we only know him as Telemach, is making his life now. Now, something pretty incredible happens to Telemach. And this is largely because, I think, of the liberality uh, of his owner. Telemach buys a lottery ticket in 1799. And in 1799, he wins. He wins $1,500. Now, that's a lot of money now. I mean, I can tell you, if I made $1,500 off this podcast, I'd be a happy guy. Because I don't. But for a man who's enslaved, that is a life-changing amount of money. And he puts it to good use. Telemach will buy his freedom for $600 from Joseph Vesey. And he starts his life anew in Charleston. Charleston does have a small free black community. Telemach wants to become a part of that. He wants to become a leader of that. And he, he takes several steps to legitimizing himself. One of the things he does is he changes his name. As a surname, as a last name, he takes Vizi, that of his owner. As a first name, he takes Denmark, uh, because Denmark was the uh, colonial holder of St. Thomas, the island he came from at the time. So now we have our character by name that we know him, Denmark Vizi. And Denmark Vizi is everything that a southern slave owner fears uh, in 1800 and 1803 and so on. He can read and write. He's a very eloquent speaker. He is a natural leader. I mean, these are qualities, if you've listened to Season 4 of Wartime, that many, many, many of these game changers have. And Denmark Vizi's one of these people that will continue this trend. Now, there's one element of this we have to discuss. We have to make it very important and make it very clear uh, for the events that we unfortunately and horrifically just saw happen here in the summer of 2015 at the Emanuel AME Church. And it's the role of the of the, of of worship, the role of faith, the role of uh, uh, of church going in the free black community in the South in the 19th century. There were very few places. Let me rephrase that. There were no places that free black people and slaves could go, unsupervised by white slave owners, to meet on their own besides church. There was nowhere to go. Again, this pervasive fear was everywhere in the South. Thomas Jefferson's nightmare. Slaves would rise up in the nights and slay their masters because they outnumbered them so badly. That any time black people got together in the South, they had to be up to no good. Right? I mean, it was a, it was a paranoia. I can't stress this enough. Shared by all. It was something that unified them. It was like an invisible web that wrapped up every slave owner in the South. You could see why the Civil War would be so, um, uh, so so meaningful, right, for them. Uh, but it's everywhere, and you've seen time and again a natural suspicion for again anyone who uh, might encourage black people, slave or free, to meet. I mean, in the in the American Revolution, uh, the British freed slaves who would serve the army. That's a southern nightmare. In the War of 1812, as we'll see, uh, the British offered freedom, emancipation, to anyone who would serve in their army against the Americans. Nightmare stuff for slave owners. So Denmark Vesey immediately will go to uh, the Christian church in Charleston that would accept him 
uh, the Second Presbyterian Church uh, and try to ingrain himself there. Now, this is a unique church because slave and free, white and black, went to church together in many cases. Maybe not in the same service, but they went to the same building. And Denmark Vesey would use his role as a minister of sorts to build up his rapport and his reputation in the society of Charleston. I mean, very quickly, Denmark Vesey sets himself apart. Even though he's a free man, he talks to many slaves much of the time. He talks to many free black people much of the time. He talks to some white people. And if you are, again, just overwhelmed by this fear of a slave rebellion coming from somewhere, there's always one around the corner, even though it almost never happens. This is a very scary thing. Denmark Vesey is on your radar in a very big way. And because of circumstances of the age, uh, he finds empowerment in that position. Now remember, the Haitian Revolution occurs uh, in 1793, 1794. It goes into about 1801. So slave owners are on edge now because they've seen... They've really seen the horrors of a slave rebellion. Before it was a boogeyman, it was a scary what if. But now it's happened. And it was everything, if not worse, than what they believed. So there was a very real suspicion of any free black people in Charleston at this time. Compounding this was the fact that Denmark Vesey was, remember, from Haiti. He lived in Saint-Domingue. He faked seizures to get out of it, but he's from there. So all of this builds. And all of this makes Charleston, by the time you get to 1815, 1816, just a powder keg. I mean, the Civil War doesn't happen overnight. Yes, we're 40 years away, uh, but you can see this coming. I mean, this this rage, this sensitivity, this paranoia about the slave trade and the slaveholding practice just drives the South mad. They They can't contend with themselves. They call slavery their peculiar institution. They can't even come to terms with what it is. They say these people are savages, we're giving them a life, we're teaching them English, we're teaching them to be Christians, we're saving their souls after all. Isn't that convenient? But again, this goes to every level of Southern society, and Denmark Vesey is everything that frightens them. And that is so important you understand this. I mean, I know I'm being repetitive, but you have to get that. This is not something I'm making up, it's not something controversial, this is Southern History 101. It's a lot more than Leonard Skinner, right? So... Uh, we'll set that aside. But this is what we have. And Denmark Vesey becomes a leader in the black community of Charleston as a result of this. Now, even the church, even something that's sacred, even something that is holy, will fall into this trap of uh, slave versus owner. Uh, this notion of uh, racial superiority, white supremacy, uh, takes over everything, right? It trumps uh, literally every aspect of life. No pun intended. Uh, how about Donald Trump, though, right? As an aside, what kind of world are we living in? This is the greatest thing that's ever happened to American politics. This is what we get. The members, that is the white members, the white members of the first of the Second Presbyterian Church of Charleston believe that the black members and, and the black members of Charleston society uh, as a whole are becoming far too um, uh, zealous about doing things that they feel they shouldn't, like reading and writing and studying all of the Bible. I mean, here's a good example. Denmark Vesey always would talk about the Old Testament, and he'd always say that, like the Israelites, he'd read the book of Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. They were slaves. And like the Israelites, they would be free. The promised land was waiting for them. 
And he would always read those passages, and, and, and black people would hear that, and they'd grab a hold of it, because that's not necessarily something they could hear all the time. I mean, one of the things that slave owners love to do is read about, uh, read passages about slavery, uh, as mentioned in scripture. Slaves should obey your masters, those sorts of things. These very weird, quizzical sort of one-liners that would somehow legitimize their deplorable institution of slavery. Well, whenever slaves start to hear Denmark Vesey, and they hear about slaves earning their freedom and so on, it's an empowering thing. It's an empowering thing. Uh, and again, it's very troublesome to the members of that church. So, what do we see? You start to see little by little, uh, the Second Presbyterian Church of Charleston take away rights uh, of its black congregants little by little. And the ultimate affront will be uh, basically demolishing the black cemetery of Charleston. They need a place to keep their hearse. They call it a hearse house. Uh, sort of think of it like a garage. And they say, what better place to put it than over this black cemetery? Teach uh, these people a lesson. And of course, they wouldn't have said these people. They would have said something else. But uh, that's the story. And this will cause all of the black congregants in the Second Presbyterian Church to leave. And they'll establish their, their own church. At the time, they called it the African Church of Charleston. That will become known as the uh, African Methodist Episcopal Church or the Emmanuel AME Church. Again, welcome to 2015. The terrible events we saw in Charleston center around this congregation. I mean, think about this. We're talking about the 1820s. And we have to jump to 2015. We have a long way to go in the United States. Uh, but this is important. We understand this. In this new church the AME Church, Denmark Vesey begins to develop uh, what he believes to be a biblically inspired plan. And this plan is freedom. He's free, but not just for him, for all people in South Carolina. And there's a very intense personal reason for this, not just because he came from slavery. It's because of his family. Denmark Vesey bought his freedom. He was married to a slave woman, and he had slave children. Now, the law in South Carolina stated that if a black woman who was a slave had children, they instantly became slaves. They were too valuable. They were too valuable, and I mean in terms of wealth, in terms of money. People owned slaves like they owned uh, cars or pieces of art, except these things appreciated in value, right? Slaves appreciate in value. And they treated them like things. That's why I say that word. It's deplorable. At any rate... He could buy his freedom, $600, we talked about that, but he would not uh, or could not purchase the freedom of his wife and his children. Whoever owned them wouldn't sell. So imagine for a second, put your politics aside, put your interpretation of the past aside. Imagine if you are a man married with children, and you're free, but a slave owner will not sell your family. Now, what's it like for a female slave? You have to understand this. As a female slave, you have no rights, and you don't even have rights uh, to control your own body. Female slaves are raped regularly in the South, from ages as young as 10 or younger. We see it all the time. If a slave owner wants to have sex with a woman, he does it. If an overseer wants to have sex with a woman, he does it. Uh, if just a, a random uh, white worker on the plantation wants to have sex with a woman, he does it. I mean, you are you are a sex slave as much as a working slave as much as a farmhand or a domestic worker. And that's something that we really tend to cover up. 
Okay? It just is. I mean, the sources are there. The most valuable slave you could own in the South. And remember, slavery is about working on a farm. It's about picking cotton, things like that. Is a young, biracial, or light-skinned, prepubescent girl. Now, why would a prepubescent, light-skinned girl be the most valuable slave one could own? It doesn't take much imagination. You're not going to see that in the sources. You will see the wealth. You will see the value. And you know why. This is human trafficking for sexual purposes. At any rate, this is the world Denmark Vesey lives in. And this is what he's trying to fight against. So Denmark Vesey will use his position as a class leader, they called it, uh, in the new AME church to spread his word, to spread his own personal gospel of freedom and independence and, most importantly, rebellion. The plan is that if enough people get together in Charleston, they can occupy the city, they can escape on ships, and they can flee maybe to Haiti. Because remember, Haiti is now a free country. The slaves overthrew their French colonial masters, and now they run the place. He knows Haiti, Saint-Domingue, he's been there. He thinks it's a plan. Now, there were other parts of this plan. And again, usually when people talk about this, the partisans, that is, they pick one side or the other. Denmark Vesey's plan was also to kill every white person they could find, man, woman, or child, before they take the city and escape. So we're not making him out to be a saint. He had violence in mind. And by all accounts, he had over a thousand people ready to join him, free and slave alike. Now, these uh, these plans are dispersed, again, through the church. The church is one of the only places that black people could meet and have any sense of privacy, if they had any at all. And Vizi, in a very cunning fashion, used his time at, uh, behind the pulpit to spread this message. Now, the question you should be asking now is, why doesn't the Denmark Vizi rebellion recovered more or reported more in American life. I mean, before the events of this summer, very few Americans could have told you about Denmark Vesey. Um, most probably still can't. I'm glad you're listening. I mean, this is part of it. This is part of it. And the reason is because the slave rebellion doesn't happen. The slave rebellion will be put down. Denmark Vesey and his followers will be punished. And this event will be erased from Southern history. At least they tried. It's that intense, it's that real. So again, what's the plan? Take Charleston, rise up, capture the city, and flee for freedom. Is it a noble plan? I suppose maybe. You're going to kill a lot of people in the process, but you're almost guaranteed to die anyway uh, because of your condition of servitude. So this is what happens. Now, how does it get out? What foils this? Denmark Vesey tells a lot of people about this. And he wants to do it in July, to celebrate the day that after the French Revolution, slaves were freed in Saint-Domingue. But he begins to have fears that the word may get out. Because Denmark Vesey knew if he was caught planning this, he was dead. I mean, there's no way around it. He was dead. In that society in the South of that time, the, the fear and the paranoia of slave rebellion is so intense, it's almost palpable. There'd be very little discussion about this. So he moves the date up, about a month. He says, we have to do this soon. Sure enough, the word does escape. Not just one person, not just two people, but a number of slaves will go to their masters and tell them everything about Denmark Vesey's plan. 
Now, why do they do it? From our vantage point as moderns, slavery is pretty cut and dry a bad thing. Why would they ever want to diffuse something like that? Why would they ever want to foil something like that? But again, you have to understand slavery in the South in the 19th century. A movie came out a few years ago called 12 Years a Slave. I don't give you guys homework, but you have to watch that movie. And I say that because as far as historical movies goes, it is off the charts, I think, the best I've ever seen. The detail they spend in that movie, the research they put into that movie, is overwhelming. The thing I love most about that movie, aside from the fact that aesthetically, to the, the eye, visually, it does bring the 1830s back to life in Louisiana. The thing I love about that movie is they show slavery in its many different forms. It is uh, very clear by the historical record uh, that not all slaves were created equal. That is, some slaves were favored by their masters. Some slaves could live very comfortable lives. Some slaves were very, very loyal to their masters for that reason. Don't forget the idea of freedom we have today was something that didn't exist to these people. It's not like they were slaves and they knew that somewhere at the end of the rainbow was their freedom. That was the existing social order. And some chose to operate within it. Now, if they could have had their freedom, I bet they would have wanted it. But that's not a possibility. Literally millions of people lost their lives because of this institution. So some slaves are very loyal to their owners. Some slaves will defend and protect their owners. And many of them involved in Denmark Vesey's plot believe that if they're going to kill all the white people, I want to save my master because I have personal feelings for him. Right? We can understand. It's a very human emotion. But then you had very terrible treatment of, of black people in slavery. Usually the further south you go, the worse it gets. I mean, if you're going to be a slave in Louisiana or Mississippi, death is virtually guaranteed, and it's going to be a very premature death. You're not going to grow old in those places. They'll work you to death. In Virginia, uh, North Carolina, where the crops tend not to be as vast, where the, the, the crop isn't as year-round, so to speak, um, you might live to be later. You're still going to die young, but you might have a measure of comfort. That being said, there's no comfort like freedom. So why would they do that? Why would they blow Denmark Vesey's cover? Well, they did it for those reasons. They did it for those reasons. So as the plot unravels, Denmark Vesey right away is believed to be one of the major culprits. Why? Everything we talked about. He can read, he can write, he's a public figure, he has a venue, he has a means of spreading this word. Uh, and justice comes swiftly. Most of what we know about Denmark Vesey's life comes from the trials that follow this busted rebellion. Uh, and if it had happened, again, with the amount of people he had lined up, it would have been catastrophic for slave owners in Charleston. It would have been wonderful for the free people involved. But justice comes swiftly. They keep immaculate records when it serves them in the South. If you want to go into history, you want to research the South in the antebellum period, you have to get ready for that. They're going to talk about things the way they want to talk about them. Nobody wants to put themselves in a bad light. They didn't think they were bad people for owning slaves. So they talked about things in ways that exonerated themselves. At least they thought. It doesn't. It still stinks today. But most of what we know about Denmark Vesey comes from that trial. comes from information that's come up and so on. Now Denmark Vesey is hung. He's executed along with many of his followers. And to send a message to any slave who might think about rebelling, they leave the bodies hanging 
until there's nothing left. They leave them rotting and decaying, covered in insects and birds, until there's nothing left. Again, this is like a person living in a house they believe to be haunted. And then after 30 years, they actually see a ghost. This fear of slave rebellion was so intense when one actually was revealed, my goodness. The sky was falling. Justice was swift. It was brutal. It was unbelievable. All of Denmark Vesey's conspirators were killed. Their bodies left on public display. And many, many just uh, uninvolved uh, enslaved people in the countryside were killed. Just because they were black. I mean, the South was on full alert. Rationale out the window a long time ago. But what's really important for us, aside from what Denmark Vesey almost did, was the reaction. Because the Denmark Vesey Rebellion, or what would almost be the Denmark Vesey Rebellion, put them into a tailspin that couldn't result in anything else but a situation as terrible as civil war. What do we mean? The South Carolina legislature will lose their minds, from my perspective, after this rebellion, or what would have been a rebellion. And they take away whatever rights African Americans free or slave had in their state. In some places, I should say most places at the time, if a person wanted to be freed, we call that emancipation, their owner just had to say, you're free, here's some paperwork. But in South Carolina, they changed the law so that a single person could only be freed if both houses of the state legislature agreed so. I mean, think about that. Think about how little gets done in government now. And by the way, South Carolina was notorious for getting nothing done. In terms of their legislature, they met once a year, just before Christmas, and they never really passed anything except these like strange slave laws that didn't really fix any problems because the problems didn't exist and they mostly made things worse. So now if you live in South Carolina, if you're a black person, and you want to be free, if your master frees you, you aren't free unless both houses of the state legislature say yes. I mean, that's not going to happen. It made emancipation virtually impossible after this event. It gets worse. If you know anything about the Civil War, you know that a large portion, if not the vast majority, of Great Britain's cotton came from the South. And they had sailors coming in and out of southern ports, primarily Charleston, every day. They actually were so afraid of another slave rebellion that a free black person would get to their slaves and tell them about freedom. They passed a law they called the Seaman Act. And the Seaman Act said, if you were a black person, free black person, right, as they are in Britain, and you come to Charleston, the, the, the captain of your ship must give you over to them, and they'll keep you in a jail until it's time to leave. They wouldn't even let free black people from other countries come to their ports to work. So if you're from England, if you were never a slave, and you go to Charleston, if you're black, you have to get off your ship, go into a Charlestonian jail, and wait there until your ship's ready to leave, and then you can go back. And a lot of the time, if you're a free black person taken into one of those jails, you never made it back. Because they sold you into slavery, and because you didn't have any free papers, you're done. That literally happened all the time. So for a lot of, uh, for, for most of the 19th century after this, the British have a very serious problem. They need the cotton, but they can't send their ships to port. Because if there are any black crewmen on these ships, they will be kidnapped and probably sold into slavery. And that's a cause for war. I mean, it goes so far beyond that. They build uh, an entire military installation, an arsenal, in Charleston, facing the AME church, where Denmark Vesey planned his rebellion. 
uh, that is built specifically for, this is 1829, so about seven years after the rebellion, specifically to suppress slave rebellions should they happen. I mean, think about the money that would cost to build an entire military installation just for that. And today, that's the Citadel. Today, that's a major, a major point of pride for the American military, as it should be. But let's talk about the origins. My gosh. I mean, they just, they just went crazy because the fear was so real. And now it really, uh, was justified in their minds. The biggest and most important thing, I think, in terms of tangible things that, that Charlestonians will do, uh, to, uh, show their dismay over Denmark Vesey, uh, to punish the black community of Charleston is to locate the AME church at that time, the African church of Charleston. And they disbanded. They said, you can't meet here anymore. In fact, you can't meet anywhere. And they burned it down. They burned it down. The, the, the Emmanuel AME church standing in Charleston today that I had the privilege of seeing is a different church. It's a church that's rebuilt. But at its core is its history. Denmark Vesey's rebellion is a point of pride for these people, as it should have been. As it should have been. Since then, it's become a centerpiece of the civil rights movement in America. Martin Luther King spoke there. Coretta Scott King led a rally there. I mean, this is a place that has deep spiritual meaning and historical meaning to the people involved. And the fact that it had to be brought back into the, the news cycle, the fact that it had to be brought back into the American consciousness for something as deplorable as what happened there this year, uh, is, is almost leaves me speechless. I mean, you, you know, we have a real problem in the United States that we have to deal with. The man who shot those people sat there and studied scripture with them for almost two hours before he took their lives, before he murdered them. And he did so in a place with deep historical meaning for reasons based in white supremacy that they were unfortunately all too familiar with for about 200 years. It's important that we talk about historical things that, again, have relevant meaning. Again, I was happy to talk about, you know, Ivan the Terrible or Otto von Bismarck. But I couldn't let this one go. It's too important. Charleston's a wonderful place today. Uh, and it has a lot of history, but that history will always be there. You don't have to take credit for it. You don't have to take the blame for it. You didn't do it. But we have to understand it's there. We can't change it because we're uncomfortable with it. If you do that, you see things like what happened this summer happen again. The man who shot those people said he was doing it to take his country back. Because those people in there, black people, were ruining his country. It's incredible. It's amazing that those sentiments have been echoed for 200 years in that same building. It's very hard to deal with. But we have to be better. We have to be better. I am a religious person. I don't know if there is a hell. But man, that guy's going to be in it. As always, you pick the episode for next week. Thank you for joining us. I'm Brady Kreitzer. And this is Wartime. <laughs>